Support for the Aero Podcast comes from Vima. Vima is a construction company with over 50 projects done inside and outside of the country. Later during the break, we hear from a representative who talks more about Vima. You can find them at vima-ir.com. That's V-I-M-A-I-R.com. The Notebook by Nicholas Sparks. This is the AR Podcast. It isn't easy to explain. It has not been the rip-roaring, spectacular offense that it would be. I suppose it has most resembled a blue chip stock. Fairly stable. More ups than downs. And gradually, trending upwards over time. I've learned that not everyone can say this about his life. But do not be misled. I'm nothing special. Of this, I'm sure. I'm a common man with common thoughts, and I've led a common life. There are no monuments dedicated to me, and my name will soon be forgotten. But I've loved another with all my heart and soul, and to me, this has always been enough. Those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. George Bernard Shaw
Hey guys, it's Ali. How have you been? Before I start, one of the most interesting traditional festivals of our country is approaching. So, happy Yalda to everybody. I hope the longest night of the year is your most beautiful. Transparency in the market is what my next guest is striving for, with his primary focus being in the real estate. He's a data scientist and has designed a free platform for anybody who likes to help him achieve this transparency. Please welcome Ali Reza Zulfawari. This is the AR Podcast. It's just great to meet you. It's, it's, you're, you seem to be somebody who likes to help people. Like, you know, like you, you've certainly helped me. Like, you know, every time you see, it feels to me like that, that every time you see potential, like you just feel like, you know, I can, I can help this person. Like, you know, you're, you're, you have that kind of a character. Uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, thanks for the, uh, uh, basically, uh, for the comments. But uh, I guess this is part of human nature, right? If you see opportunity, you want to help that opportunity to flourish. Yeah. And uh, when I saw you first time, I realized that how talented you are and uh, I thought uh, if I can be part of this movement, I would be glad. That's why we had that long chat about yeah. the future yeah. of uh, sponsored yeah. <laughs> content. Thank you, thank you so much, thank you. Uh, the, the thing is, the first thing that came to my mind, of course, was uh, like, you know, I asked you a couple of questions you were like, these are some cliche questions, like, you know, ask me some great questions and I thought about it and then I think I have a lot of questions to ask you. <laughs> So the first thing I'm going to ask you is, um, we did talk about uh, the fact that you are a data scientist, so you know a lot, a lot about data basically in, in Iran, but Iran is not the kind of country that is you know, transparent, as you would imagine. Um, so as a data scientist, what are the challenges that you will face like, you know, working in a country with you? Uh, That's a very good question. Uh, so when I moved to Iran two years ago, uh, I did some research beforehand to see the, thing, the type of things that I want to do if the country has the potential or has the infrastructure to do that. Because one of the things that we did in Khalid, we kind of introduced the first data-driven product for the real estate market. And uh, so when we talk about data-driven products, so that means that the raw material of that product is data. So if there is no data, so that means that there is no product, so we cannot do it. So when I was uh, in the UK, so I did some research to see if actually the data exists. Uh, surprisingly, uh, Iran is actually, yeah, I agree, it's not a very transparent country, but we have a law uh, that is passed by the parliament almost 12 years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, which is basically uh, the right of citizens to have access to public information. Uh, so the issue of that law and legislation is that they didn't define clearly what is public information and what is not public information. And sometimes we see that people uh, treat that law with their own perspective and with their own, uh, let's say, uh, judgment. And uh, so, but the good thing about that is that there is data. When we move to the technology age, uh, so when we develop any product, any software products, any uh, basically uh, enterprise applications, as a data will be produced as a result of that enterprise data applications. So the government of Iran has developed a lot of enterprise applications. And uh, so 
that means that that product itself started to generate some data. Uh, and uh, so that means the data is available. And the good thing about that is that the current government actually has been uh, quite helpful in terms of opening up that data. Uh, so just a week ago there was a hackathon uh, organized by Tehran municipality. Uh, so on open data and open API. So that means that Tehran municipality, they opened up their own data sources and they gave access to young developers uh, to develop a product or a prototype or uh, an idea using that data and APIs. So that, that was very promising. I didn't get the chance to attend the, uh, the hackathon myself, uh, but I've uh, had a chat with the, uh, one of the person that was in charge of that hackathon, and apparently there was a very good feedback. So that means that they have this kind of edge of using their existing resources, uh, which is, one of them is data, and uh, to drive economic uh, growth. And in my opinion, governments has only three resources globally. It's either land, in our case it's natural resources like oil and gas, mining, uh, they've got tax, and the fourth one, which hasn't been, I said three, but the fourth one uh, is a new one, yeah. and that's why they call it a new oil. So the uh, British mathematician, they call data, they refer data as a new oil. Mm -hmm. And by that, he means that, uh, so oil helped the industrial revolution to flourish, yeah. because a lot of businesses and uh, uh, basically uh, uh, a lot of jobs were created, a lot of businesses were created, a lot of products were created by the discovery of oil. Um, and data can play the same role in postmodern economy, which is basically now. Okay, that's, that's very fascinating. Uh, but before I go on to other questions that are pretty, like, you know, uh, the questions that I've actually really, really thought about, um, can you describe to me where we are sitting right now? Because uh, the thing is, I'm pretty sure people can understand that there's a lot of eco in this room. So they might be thinking, because uh, I, my previous uh, episode, we, I talked to Lena Lafayette, and the same thing happened. So we were, there was a lot of eco, and a lot of people asked questions as to, like, you know, was that room empty that, like, you, you had a lot of, like... But the thing is, uh, when I enter this room, it seems to me like this is some sort of an idea room. Like, you know, a kind of room that you go into to... And you have, a, I, have I can see there's a lot of things written on the walls, basically. Yeah. So this is basically our unofficial meeting room. So that means that when you want to brainstorm, when you want to have a chat about a product idea, when you want to plan for the product development or marketing or any other restrictions that we have, we sit here informally and we have a chat about our ideas and that's why we write a lot of things on the on the walls. Yeah. <laughs> it's lucky in our glass walls so that we can... Yeah, that, that's, I think that's needed. Like, you know, yeah. it, like, is this room accessible to anybody who has an idea in their Yes, room? that's true. Yeah. They come in here and they just write things. Yeah, yeah they come here and they start chatting uh, about their ideas, and then if they need me, they ask me to join as well in the meeting. Okay. Do you think you're, you're accepting, like, you know, in terms of, like, you know, if anybody has an idea about your, like, application in your team? To you be honest, know? I think, yeah, I really like that, to be honest, because. Uh, these days, I'm unfortunately very busy with the uh, paperwork, finance, like uh, a lot of our HR issues. So that means that I don't have that much time to think about product ideas. So, but my product team are very creative and they have more time than me to think about the things that we want to uh, develop to uh, enhance our products. So that means that I love any ideas from anyone, not just my team. Even sometimes I get a lot of ideas from my sales team. 
because they're on the market, they're actually on the field, they, they hear customers' feedback. So when they come back to the office, they either uh, ask for a meeting or they talk to my product manager and uh, so he kind of is in charge of getting ideas and if they're good, so we set up a meeting and to discuss about the things that we can do to improve our product a little bit. Uh, how did you know that you could implement this idea that you had and you can be successful in this in this economy and in this country basically? To be honest, uh, I'm still not sure that I'll be successful, but <laughs> yes. I'll try. Uh, so I don't think anyone knows that he's going to be or she's going to be successful in any ideas or any businesses. It's just uh, a matter of uh, trying to do something rather than just imagining about the things that could happen. So I guess one of the differences that uh, I guess I have with a lot of my friends or my colleagues when I was a PhD student, so a lot of them they were actually looking for a very stable and linear life. I so I was up for non-linear life. So that means that uh, non-linear doesn't mean that you always have a better life. So that means sometimes actually it's going down, mm -hmm. sometimes it's going up. So it's non-linear. By definition, uh, and I guess that's kind of a person's character. So the person's, uh, let's say, risk-taking capacity or uh, tension uh, of uh, uh, of taking risks. So I guess uh, I'm more or less a risk-taker person. That's why I gave a chance to this idea. And okay. Well, you were living in the UK at the time, yes. But then you had this idea. Of course, like you know, you must have had it, and then you. Immediately thought, hey, I can implement that in Iran. Like, uh, so it was more, it was a bit different. So what happened was, uh, I had a business in the UK. So when I graduated uh, in 2013, uh, so I knew that moment that I don't want to follow up an academic career. So I had a good academic career in front of me, so I could become a professor, assistant professor, and uh, and basically pursue academic career. I knew that that's not my personality. Uh, so I did a PhD like just any other Iranians that they do PhD because they don't know what else to do. <laughs> and uh, so I had an Indian friend who was telling me uh, in India we first become engineer, then we realize what you we want to do in exactly. our lives. So, uh, for Iranians, I guess for my generation, they do a PhD and then they realize what they want to do. I had a lot of friends that actually they did that. And uh, so before that, I was more or less confused. I knew that I want to. Uh, get my uh, basically degrees. After that, uh, I was confused for a year. I was doing a postdoc just to realize what I want to do. Uh, and then I started, uh, I applied for a grant, I applied for a job. Uh, the grant was a grant to start a new business. So it was a pathway to impact grant from, uh, uh, from my university. Uh, so at the time, I was also looking for a job as a data scientist. So I went uh, for a few interviews, I got one offer, and then I made a decision and I applied for this grant. And it was actually very uh, funny because I got the job offer at the grant approval on the same day. So it was a very exciting day, I remember that day. Uh, but I had to make a decision to again take a risk and give a chance to this uh, opportunity to start a business with that grant or take a job and follow up a, a career as a data scientist. Uh, so I decided to actually uh, just I told myself that okay, I can get this job next year as well. Uh, so I said, okay, just, let's just uh, 
stay one more year in university and use this grant to create a spin-off company, a company that is actually a spin-off uh, university. And so I stayed in university for one more year and I used a grant, I set up a team, I developed a prototype and an MVP product and then uh, I span off that company, I created a, a small company which was in a uh, more or less technology part of the, my university and uh, had a few more grants from British government, from European Union, from uh, different institutions, from an angel investor and using the investments and the grants that I had in the UK, I managed to actually create a business and I managed to uh, basically exit from that business three years after. So when I sold the business to a larger corporations that they use our product, uh, so again, I realized that, okay, so I need to do something else. So I told myself, okay, so maybe Iran is the next move because I know how to run a business now. I'm older into it, so I've got more experience. And uh, I've done it once. I created the product and I uh, <clears throat> sold it. Uh, so I had an exit from my business. So I told, okay, maybe this is the next opportunity. And that time was after JCPOA. And everyone were excited about the nuclear deal that Iran and the West had. And I was also thinking that, okay, maybe this is the time to actually help the Iranian economy by starting a business there. So I had more or less the technology that needed for the business I'm doing here. So because I did it once, I just needed to do it uh, again with a new market and try it in a new market. So uh, that's why I made the decision actually to come to Iran. Do you regret it? Um, I cannot say I regret it. No, I don't regret it to be honest. I think it was actually a good move. It was a difficult decision uh, because in terms of the uncertainty that exists in the Iranian economy, that's a little bit disappointing because you don't know where it's going to end. And uh, so the beauty of living in the West is that you know even when Brexit happens, the currency drops maximum 5-10%. But in Iran, 200% is... The minimum fluctuation, you know what I mean. Like, so yeah, it's a little bit. The market is a little bit different from the, uh, from the, uh, let's say, the UK market or North American market. Uh, so, but again, this is opportunity in terms of because uh, normally uh, major growth and major success happens uh, when the country or a region or market is not quite established yet. And uh, overall, on a balance of probabilities, I think it was a good decision. But sometimes I, I'm not sure myself. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, like it. I completely understand. <laughs> so when I entered the office, as I did with the uh, with uh, the other application that I've talked to before, uh, Piyade was the other application. When I entered the office, uh, like I saw the, the like you know vast like the, the, the majority of people who are working inside the inside the office, there are pretty young people. Like, now, are you necessarily lo looking for young ideas or are you, like, you know, looking for some people who are young, but, like, you know, they have a lot of experience? Uh, to be honest, uh, that, I don't know how that happened, but the average age of uh, my employees in Kilid uh, is 25. So that means that about from 20s up to 30s. So that means that... Uh, it's a quite a young company in terms of the average age of uh, staff. Uh, so, if I want to be honest on that, 
I'm 24 myself, so that means that uh, and startups uh, because they cannot pay a very good salary, so that means that you cannot hire very senior staff. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing is uh, a lot of people that I hired to join my company, they were actually in uh, my technical team. They didn't have that much experience beforehand, uh, but they were coming from good universities and they had a good education. They were very motivated. And I thought I can give chance to these guys and I can give them opportunity to learn. And uh, I think that was a good decision because uh, so I could hire more senior staff, uh, but uh, I realized that okay, the, te- the type of technology that I use uh, is very difficult to find a senior staff because the Iranian tech market is a difficult one. A lot of people, they experience with Microsoft platforms, Platinum platforms, PHPs. So because of the, uh, the type of technology that I use, I couldn't find very senior and experienced staff, so I had to hire junior staff and junior uh, engineers and help them to, to, to grow. And for example, my senior data scientist, he's 24, 25, so and uh, he's very sharp, very smart, very astute, and uh, I guess uh, he's one of the uh, one of the greatest. Uh, Thing that happened to me that I actually I was privileged to, to meet these talented guys that actually helped me to to develop this uh, business. Okay, okay, fine. So uh, I'm going to go back to Kili, but before that, I'm going to ask you a question because this uh, question seemed a little bit fascinating to me myself. Uh, as a data scientist, um, again, as we talked about that, there's not uh, there's less transparency. I'm not saying that there's no transparency at all. But uh, th- there must be some gaps in which uh, th- there's just no data available for something. So as a data scientist, how do you basically manage when there's no data available? When there's no data available, we collect data. So we create a product that actually collects data. I'll give you an example. So Google can actually uh, estimate traffic in Tehran better than any public authority. And they don't even have an office here. And so we all use ways, right? So for uh, finding uh, uh, the route, the best, yeah. the best, uh, less traffic routes. So and how do they collect the data? They collect the data from the users. So that is a very known fact and uh, very good practice. It's called crowdsourcing. So that means that actually the users help to provide the data in order to have a better, uh, let's say, experience. So that means that it's kind of a win-win situation. They contribute. Uh, uh, to the platform and the platform helps everyone else so because of that uh, let's say uh, beauty of the internet businesses is that they interact with a lot of users and each user can be a source of data so for us we also have crowdsourcing our platform as well so uh, for a lot of houses that we don't have information we invite our users to fill the gap in order to get better estimates of their current houses uh, valuations so that means that there is always, when there is a will, there is a way. So, and uh, of course, we need some public data sources. Of course, we need some data sources from municipalities, from official data sources. Uh, I mean, Iran National Statistics Office, uh, which are actually quite uh, helpful in terms of providing data sources. But if anything else, if we, there is no data, uh, so the platform itself can generate data, can collect data. Most platforms, they actually generate their own data. And uh, so, which is also the case for us as well. So we generate a lot of data every day. I understand. 
Uh, okay, fine. And but now let's go back to your uh, yeah application. Uh, can you tell us and everybody who's listening to this podcast what is the application we're talking about and what do they what are they sorry um, you know supposedly looking at when they open your application? Sure. Uh, so I don't like the new term of application because application <laughs> is just uh, refers to mobile application in my mind. Uh, so Kilid is a platform. So if there is a web application, there is a mobile application uh, that people can use. Uh, uh, so it is a platform, which is a double-sided platform. Uh, so we have there is a business side, which is a B2B side, which we work directly with the state agents, and they can use our platform to advertise their own listings. We also provide them with the software tools to easily collect that information. There is a mobile application uh, uh, specific to state agents that they can use that to manage their own uh, business more efficiently. There is a CRM tools for them. And we provide them with a lot of information that they need to run their business better. Uh, so that's from the B2B side. Uh, from the B2C side, there is a Kilit.com and Kilit mobile application which uh, gives access to our data sources. So. Uh, in one word, we are a smart real estate agent platform. Uh, so that means that, uh, or property portal. So that means that people can go to the website, to our websites, and find for their home that they like. And uh, so we have a lot of advanced search options. They can draw on a map very flexibly by just uh, tapping a mouse, or they can uh, use our augmented reality feature to find uh, with our mobile applications to find the properties, which, uh, is, very which, is, very, uh, which is a nice one. When they're on the streets, they can just easily see the, where the properties are, mm -hmm. and uh, that's interesting. So that is the listing site. So that means that we give access uh, to the listings that are provided by estate agents. Uh, from the data science sites, we have a lot of cool features. So we've got a product that's called a smart valuation. So that means that, excuse me, people can just enter the 10-digit postcodes, mm -hmm. which is unique for each property in order to get a current market estimates uh, of the property. So we do that with a technology that is called AVM, Automated Valuation Model. Uh, that, was, uh, 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 that was basically the core idea, the core, let's say, IP of Kilit. Uh, uh, so we collect a lot of information from different sources in order to be able to uh, estimate the current valuations and we use advanced machine learning technique you know, to get to the uh, good estimates. So our accuracy for that is actually quite good. Uh, I'm actually quite uh, proud of the, uh, the accuracy that we could achieve for Tehran. For London, for example, a, a, a company called Zupla, they have an accuracy of 10.7%. Uh, so our accuracy for Tehran is 9.7%. So which means we exactly outperform them with 1% in Tehran. Uh, and, I'm comparing Tehran to London, so that means that we did a good job and, uh, with the quality of data sources that we had. Uh, so that is uh, one unique feature that Kilit.com uh, uh, provides, and uh, there is a lot of application to that. So people they want to know the current valuations in order to be able to upsize or upsize or downsize their properties. So they want to set up an alert to receive monthly the updated valuations, they just want to track their assets because a home is the, let's say, uh, is a place to live, but also it's one of the highest assets that we have in our lives. So that means that uh, uh, there is a consumption market and there is an uh, investment market. So we all look 
speculate on the property market because for a lot of Iranian families or even globally, uh, their home is the one of the most uh, part of their actually net uh, assets that they have. Uh, so there is another thing that we have which is quite interesting. We we call it market insight. They can see the trends of house price changes at the regional level. So that means that in Tehran region one, they can compare it with Tehran region two, region three. Even they can see the price trends at the neighborhood level. They can see the number of transactions. They can see how, how much house price indexes has increased or decreased, which is very rare in the case of Tehran. And uh, there is another cool feature, which is a heat map of properties. Mm -hmm. So that means that they can see on a map. Uh, so the the uh, the prices uh, uh, if if there is if there is a neighborhood that actually is very expensive uh, the price becomes red in that neighborhood or if the neighborhood that is affordable becomes green in the neighborhood so they can actually look on the map to see which area is affordable for them and they can actually draw specifically on that area and find listings on that specific areas. Based, based on the settings that they've put on the app? Right? No, no, this is based on actual transaction data that we collect. Oh, yeah, the transactions, the housing transactions. Data. So and we kind of uh, estimate house prices in each 250 meters. Okay. Uh, so uh, with that estimates, we can generate a heat map, a smooth heat map of the house prices uh, for Terra. Uh, we have actually developed it for Mashhad as well. We will uh, develop it for Shiraz, Esfahan, Mashhad, Abris. So we gradually uh, develop that technology for the most Iranian cities. I see. Oh, that was my next question, basically. Okay, so it's good. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the thing is that our government is looking for, um, like you know, uh, services like this because they are trying to kind of have the culture. And, you know, installed in this, like the culture that we have right now. And that's, they want a lot of this happening because they want people to know that, like, you know, what are the actual prices, where, where are we going with the prices. And we kind of need this in each and every little, like, you know, um, organization. We need something like this. So, do you think you're some sort of a, like, yeah, somebody who's coming up with this idea and, like, you know, you are the first person kind of to, to uh, like, you know, have something like this available in the country? And you're trying to have that a little bit of a transparency happening. Uh, I think in property markets we were the first one. Uh, so there were property portals beforehand. They were categorized that uh, beforehand, like uh, companies like Divor or Shapeout that they have ads on each category, different categories, from cars to houses to different things. So we had different property portals. They had only aggregated listings from estate agents. Uh, but no one actually started actually looking into the data side of it, trying to get some insight, some knowledge, some value from the data, and uh, try to bring some transparency to the Iranian uh, very opaque uh, housing market. And uh, in that sense, I think we were the pioneer of the field of prop tech, prop technology, which means that using data and technology in order to create a product that fits the housing market uh, needs of people. And... Uh, uh, in, but in other technology sectors, there were actually, uh, I mean, very good companies that they tried to actually achieve that. Uh, for example, in e-commerce, Digicolor uh, gave the option to compare prices. Mm -hmm. So even that transparency didn't exist before. So they could actually read uh, customers' reviews. So uh, when you want to purchase a camera or a microphone, so you could 
see what other people said about that brand, or uh, you could compare different prices. So that comparison and that uh, customers' uh, feedback and reviews were actually quite important and interesting, and gave customers the power of choosing the best thing that they can afford. And uh, so in terms of the urban transportation, companies like Snap and Tapsi, they did a good job. And uh, they actually give you the prices beforehand. So I love them because I, I, I remember uh, we, I never asked for the, for the ride, how much uh, does it cost to get the ride. And at the end of the day, the driver would ask an unreasonable price, let's say. But now everyone knows that how much they should pay beforehand. And so I think that is uh, uh, the beauty of technology that uh, makes a lot of uh, things much more transparent and uh, some services are, uh, I guess, some sectors are actually an urgent need of becoming more transparent and the housing market is one of those that we try to, uh, we try to enter. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, maybe more for cars or something. We need something like that as well, yeah, yeah. In, in the near future. Yeah, in cars, there are some platforms, but uh, they don't, again, they're just listings. So they're just uh, the adverts by the uh, either the brokers or by the owners themselves. So there is no technology currently that can actually estimate the car valuations, but that technology is, exists. And you can just enter the number plates in auto traders, and you can get the current validation and estimates of the, how much uh, your car is worth. And uh, so uh, I would like someone to actually develop that idea in Iran as well. I understand that it was, uh, I think you celebrated the first uh, birthday, I guess, on, uh, on the 19th of Azhar or something, on, uh, for, uh, for your company, Kirid? Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 So uh, in this one year, yeah. Yeah, do you think you've uh, achieved the things that you wanted to achieve? I think we have, because it's been a year that we have officially launched, but the first version that we've launched, it was just a very basic platform. So uh, three months after we managed to uh, launch our first version of our smart valuations and housing market insights. And since then, we kept improving it. And every month, uh, we had a new version of our product, which was actually quite amazing. In terms of the business stats, we managed to grow very significantly. In terms of the head counts, we managed to grow very significantly. We started with a team of two. Now we are more than 75. So that means that we... Uh, we managed to grow very fast in a year and so uh, I think I'm quite satisfied and I really wanted to see if that could happen because a lot of people were saying that okay, the Iranian market is different so each house has how do you estimate a house prices without even seeing it and I said okay we could look at the last time that the property has been transacted we could look at the comparables uh, uh, listings for that house that are currently in the market. We could look at the uh, historical changes of the valuations of the price at that region. Victor, a lot of things that we could use to estimate, just to provide an estimate for the for the house valuations. That's from your perspective as, as, yeah, as a data scientist, because like from somebody who like you know doesn't know anything about it, like me, I would look at this and I say, how is this even possible? So yeah. Yeah, but I mean that is I mean more or less is the same that we do it in reality. Like if I. If you ask me that, okay, you take me to a house, okay, how much do you estimate the current valuation of this house 
without using a technology. So I would, what I would do is say, okay, uh, let's look at what's in the market currently. So this house is two bed, the other one is two bed, this one is a little bit larger. So based on the comparator, uh, comparables in the market, and based on uh, the, uh, how much this property is being transacted uh, initially, so you could get an estimate, so that's not a very difficult job. But our algorithm is actually much more sophisticated than that. We look at several attributes. We look at the locations. We look at the uh, um, the distance to the closest amenities, like schools, like hospitals, like uh, uh, being adjacent to a highway. So we look at several attributes in order to provide a better estimates. And we look at a very large, much larger sample than a human being can actually look at. So that means that our, our estimates is more or less uh, in some sense, is actually more accurate than the human uh, estimates. The only way that we are actually lacking uh, information is the one that our estimate is not quite good. For example, if someone has gold tiles in their bathroom, so uh, there is impo it's impossible for us to estimate the valuations of that. Uh, but if it's a normal average property, so we can provide a reasonable and decent estimates. Uh, the, the last question before I go to the questions from the audience, basically, and uh, they have asked, uh, you know, a couple of questions, uh, a few questions. I'm sorry, um, on um, you know the business that you're holding and everything. So, but before that, I have a question because you mentioned um, you did mention PropTech, and I wanted to ask you what the actual meaning of this is. PropTech is property technology. It's just a uh, it's like fintech, financial technology, they call it fintech, proptech. So proptech is, uh, uh, there are a lot of definitions for the proptech. Uh, the one that I think is more relevant to our discussion is that the use of information technology to develop a product that is uh, helping housing market uh, to become more efficient. So that is more or less proptech. So there are a lot of businesses uh, involved in PropTech, so from property marketing businesses that they do ritual tours uh, to, uh, to prop companies that are involved in data, data science that they do provide like this, uh, I mean the AVMs that I'm talking about here, there are a lot of people that work on the blockchain and application of the blockchain for the uh, property market and there is a variety of businesses, a variety of um, <clears throat> uh, startups that are actually involved in PropTech. Uh, but the term is generally uh, is used uh, for more or less aggregating all of these uh, different startups under one umbrella. Uh, they call them property technology companies. Thank you, thank you so much. I'm going to give a little bit of a break and then uh, when we come back, uh, like I ask you the Instagram questions. Thank you so much. We'll be back after a message from the Sponsor of the Year podcast. Hey, I'm here with a Vima representative. Hey. So tell me about Vima. Vima specializes in building prefabricated and fast-track buildings with more than 50 implemented projects inside and outside of Iran. We've been focused on our values such as respecting human beings, paying special attention to nature and natural resources, using innovation and new technologies, and, of course, increasing the quality of life in construction industry. That's great. Uh, how can people reach you? You can contact us via our website, vima-ir.com. That's vima-ir.com? Yep. Amazing. Thank you for your time. Thank you. 
Every time I get a confirmation from a guest that they'll be on a podcast, I go onto Twitter and Instagram and ask people if they want to ask a question from the upcoming guest. So I'd like to thank Kushan Hatami, Uzbek Karimian, and Saman Tehrani for their amazing questions. Let's get to them. And the first question is from Kushan Hatami, and he's asked this question, what does it take to go from just an idea to a fully functional business? Uh, first of all, I think you should have a, uh, a real commitment uh, to that idea, because we all have a lot of ideas in our lives. Uh, but we never pursued them because either we never believed in them or uh, we thought it's very difficult or we had something more important to do. So we had a good job, a high paid job, or we had an immigration plan, or we had a study to do. So, uh, so there, are, there is always something that uh, stops you to pursue the idea. But I think if you really think that the idea is great and you think uh, it deserves more attention, uh, so that is, is the first step. Uh, to give your full 100% to that idea. So you cannot do uh, a startup part-time. So you cannot uh, have a job and do a, uh, have a startup at the same time. And uh, so I think uh, if you think the idea deserves full attention, you should give it full attention. That's the first thing. And uh, the other question was, uh, do you think entrepreneurship is particularly harder in Iran than in other countries? It's different. Uh, I think in some aspect it's actually uh, easier because the market has a lot of potentials. Uh, there is not a lot of competition here. Uh, but in some aspects it's very hard. So access to finance here is much more difficult than the West because money and investments here are uh, more or less competitive advantage uh, that either you can access to it or you can actually you have it or you don't. So it's there are some VCs and angel investors here, but it's very difficult to raise funding around uh, for for startups. Uh, but money in the West is a commodity, so that means that if there is an idea, you can actually go to the market and look for a good investors that is willing to take a risk and invest in the business. Uh, but on the other hand, as I said, uh, people in the West are different from people here because I guess we had that chat before. Uh, a lot of pe people in Iran are more risk takers than people in the West because they have a, the middle class there are very comfortable, they have a good jobs, they can uh, have a good life without even taking a risk of becoming an entrepreneur. But here, uh, unfortunately, the middle class uh, is getting uh, more squeezed by the current condition, and uh, uh, so a lot of people they want to start a business because they realize that the current wages in Iran is not actually at the minimum acceptable level of uh, the quality of life that they're actually looking for. Okay. Um, uh, thank you so much, Saman. Tehrani asks a question. She says, do you have a not-to-do list? Not-to-do list? No, I don't have a not-to-do list. <laughs> I'll do anything that it takes yeah. to... Uh, Yes, I do have a lot to do list. Uh, so I wanted to quit cigarettes for a long time, but it, I managed to quit it, and it happens again. But it, there is a lot of things that I want to follow up in the sports uh, more seriously, which I don't have time to do it. There is a lot of things that I want to do and I don't want to do, which uh, currently I cannot do it to be honest, because uh, uh, I've got a lot of commitments here at Kilit. Uh, 
but I'm trying on it. I'm, I'm working on it uh, to make that better. So I guess everyone has a lot to do and a must do yeah. uh, to do list, uh, which uh, is very difficult to. I always try to control my temper, so because sometimes I'm a short temper, and uh, so that's another thing that uh, I try to not to do, not to raise my voice or not to lose my temper. But generally, I'm a kind person, but sometimes uh, uh, I've got a short temper, which I'm trying to work on it. Okay, and I haven't seen that, so it's, it's really hard for me to imagine. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the. And last person from Uzbek, Harry Mion, asked you this question. Asked you this question. Um, in terms of the digital market, uh, is there any like key to become successful in that, in that market in Iran? Uh, in terms of digital markets, uh, a key to become successful, I think the product should has a uh, because a lot of people that I, a lot of, not people a lot of uh, companies that I see these days, uh, they just want to uh, copy paste an idea that worked in the West and uh, apply it in the Iranian market. I don't think that would necessarily... Uh, I don't think that's a very good idea because the Iranian uh, market is quite different. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, we need to solve a real challenge. And if, 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 for example, if you want to start a business, if you come up with a... if you have a website that sells a product and uh, you don't know anything about digital marketing strategy, you don't know anything about uh, the, uh, or you just have a website that you think that, okay, so people should just jump in on your website and start buying from you or they start using your product. That is a wrong attitude, I would say. I think, but you need to look at it, what is something, create something that has value, create a value for the customers, and also have a very good understanding of how the digital marketing works because, uh, it's a completely new world uh, for a lot of people, and uh, so taking a course on Linda on uh, digital marketing and uh, uh, driving sales uh, on digital channels would do a lot of help in, in that sense. Okay. Uh, thank you, thank you so much. The questions are over, so my, my last thing, the last thing I want to ask you, um, I usually do uh, like you know ask a lot of people who, who have been in, on the podcast. Uh, if you want to challenge somebody to do the same thing as you did, meaning that you are in the podcast and you're talking to me, if you want to challenge anybody to do the same thing and be on the podcast with me and like you know have an interview, who do you like to challenge? Ah, uh, okay, that's a good question. I like to challenge uh, Metin Aidi. He's a good friend of mine. He's a CEO of Allopaid. Uh, I think he's a great person and. Uh, very experienced, uh, very uh, bright, and also I would like to challenge uh, Mashrat Sopani, CEO of Idehop. Uh, she's one of the few Iranian uh, women entrepreneurs that I know that uh, took the risk and started a crowdfunding business in Iran. And uh, I think she is also very uh, astute and sharp uh, in the Iranian startup ecosystem. Thank you, thank you so much, thank you so much for the time. This was the greatest thing ever. Thank, thank you very much, thanks for the time. It was great talking to Ali Reza, and I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thank you for listening. See you soon, and happy Yavda. Thank you for tuning in. 